Thank you, brother. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, the book of Habakkuk. We're beginning a new series here through this book. It is one of the minor prophets, which means it's sandwiched between a bunch of other minor prophets before your New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is uh, one in the pew in front of you, one of those black Bibles. Feel free to use that or to take it with you. In 1986, in the small town of Monroeville, Alabama, the city was shaken by a grisly murder of Rhonda Morrison. The white 18-year-old girl was gunned down while working her shift as a clerk at a dry-cleaning business in the town. And even though this crime happened in broad daylight in a busy part of town, there were no witnesses, there were no clear suspects, and there was very little for investigators to go on. This was not good for the newly elected sheriff, Tom Tate. Monroeville was outraged by the crime. And the pressure to find Morrison's killer fell squarely on Tate's shoulders. Sheriff Tate used his authority and his power to do something evil. Instead of finding Morrison's true killer, he found a scapegoat. Tate turned his sights on a man named Walter McMillan, a middle-aged black man with no criminal record. Tate didn't choose Walter at random either. He chose him because Walter was known to have been in an adulterous relationship with a white woman. Fueled by his own racist hatred of Walter, his fear of man, his pride, and his ambition, the sheriff coerced false testimonies from known criminals who agreed to implicate Walter in the murder. Walter was arrested and he was charged and in a truly horrific miscarriage of justice, Walter, who was supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, was immediately housed on death row. He languished in a cramped, dirty cell on death row for years. He suffered physically, psychologically, spiritually. When we hear about this kind of injustice happening in our own state, within our own lifetimes, we have to ask the question, how many other people has this happened to that we've never even heard about? Well, since 1973, 156 death row prisoners have been proven innocent of the crime they were charged with and exonerated. That means 156 innocent people who were locked away and nearly killed for crimes they didn't commit were discovered to have been innocent. We should be careful not to assume that every exonerated prisoner was locked up because of racism or tribalism or corruption. Sometimes legitimate mistakes are made. But we would be equally foolish to think that our judicial system is free from these kinds of sin. Look at any society 
at any point in human history. And you will see that this sort of injustice is universal. Those with authority and power will often use that power to trample on the weak and the poor. In modern times, we make the mistake of thinking that these injustices are just rooted in the power structure of a society. And if we can take the power and the wealth and authority from those who have it and give it to those who don't, then we'll get a just society. But the blood spilled in the French Revolution and in Soviet Russia and in socialist Venezuela shows us just how foolish this approach really is. That's because injustice isn't just the result of power structures. It's the result of sin. It's the result of us turning from God's holy and righteous standard and instead doing what's right in our own eyes. And all of us, no matter what station of life we're born into, no matter how rich or poor we are, no matter what color our skin is, are prone to do just that. So if you look for it, you will see justice around you in this very city. You will see men abandoning their families. You will see neighbor taking advantage of neighbor for selfish gain. You will see mothers killing their innocent, unborn children for the sake of convenience. You will see men's lives ruined by false allegations of sexual assault. And you will see men who are guilty of sexual assault going unpunished because their families have influence and power. As Christians, we know we are called to do justice with our own actions. We know we're called to influence our society in just ways and as much as we can. But where evil flourishes, what are we to do? Why does it so often seem like God looks passively on the wickedness of the world? How are we to make sense of the evil around us when it so often seems senseless? Well, as we will see today, God has spoken on these very questions. The book of Habakkuk is a portrait of a man wrestling with God over the evil in the nation of Judah. You see, Habakkuk lived in the nation of Judah during a time when her leaders were at their worst. Recall, as you've heard us say many times from this pulpit, that after King David, Israel's monarchy is a history of mostly bad kings and an occasional good king. Now, having a bad king meant that the people of Israel turned from the right worship of the true God and they turned to pagan idols. They began sacrificing their children to these gods. It meant that the just precepts of the law of God were abandoned or ignored among the people. It meant wealthy Israelites bought and sold their own people as slaves, extorted poor landowners from their farmlands, and made no observance of the jubilee provisions in the law. Now on top of all this injustice within Judah, the backdrop of the book of Habakkuk is the impending invasion and destruction from the evil nation of Babylon. And that is where we find Habakkuk in this morning's verses. The prophet sees clearly 
the wickedness of his nation and how the wicked are prospering. He sees the suffering of the oppressed and he cries out to God. Follow along as I read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible, and fully sufficient word. Amen? Father, help us to hear this lament this morning with new ears. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to its truth. Help us to understand it. Help us to take what lessons you have for us from it. Amen. Have you ever prayed a prayer of lament like the one we just read? I have. You might think that as your pastor, I'm a sort of super Christian who is above this type of doubt and desperation. But I'm not. And if we think about it, if God's own prophet isn't immune from this type of experience, why would any of us be? You see, you don't have to have been wrongly imprisoned like Walter or extorted for your property and sold into slavery like the men and women in Habakkuk's time to come to a point where you cry out to God like this. This lament means to grieve over something. And if you live long enough in this sinful world, you will witness evil and suffering and pain that will someday lead you to lament in this same way and cry out, Lord, where are you? Now I'm thankful that as a church, we have a very strong understanding of what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. We recognize that God is never really absent. We recognize that though God commands us not to do evil, he also decrees that evil will happen in this world. And because of that, we know that there's no such thing as meaningless, purposeless evil. But that God works through all things for his glory and the good of those who love him. But that intellectual knowledge can be hard to hold on to when we're in the midst of great injustice. We can have a right understanding of God as perfectly sovereign, perfectly good, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. And yet when we experience firsthand the wickedness of this world, we can't help but ask, where are you, Lord? A few years ago, I made one of my first trips out to the sidewalk in front of the Alabama Women's Center in Huntsville. It is the only abortion clinic in North Alabama. I remember watching a mother walking her very young teenage daughter toward the door of that facility. 
And all of a sudden, the reality of what I was seeing hit me. This little mother was being led by her own mother into a place where her child was going to be murdered. This innocent and precious child was being betrayed by the very person who was supposed to give her safety and love and life. And when I watched this young girl walk out of there with her mother to their SUV, limping after the procedure, I couldn't keep back my tears. What God gives us in Habakkuk's words is an expression of what we feel in situations like that. When I think back to that day and I consider not just that child and her child, I consider how many children have been killed by their mothers at that clinic since then. I want to cry out with Habakkuk. How long, Lord, shall I cry for help for these children and you will not hear? I want to cry out, violence! Yet the Lord does not save them. I want to cry out, Lord, why do you make me see this iniquity? Because we're students of the Bible, because we understand God's sovereignty, we might be tempted to hear this kind of prayer and want to quibble over some of the phrasing. For example, how can we complain that God doesn't hear us when we know God hears all things? It's tempting to be like Job's friends. And to miss the heart of what Habakkuk is praying and to focus on trying to fix what we see as bad theology. But actually, Habakkuk, God is never inactive. Actually, Habakkuk, God is never absent. But Habakkuk knows that God is never absent. His theology is fine. What we see in his words is a sort of unrestrained emotion, an expression that comes in the form of an anthropomorphism. Now that word, anthropomorphism, is when we give human traits to the non-human. In this case, the non-human being God. For example, when Habakkuk says, why do you look idly at wrong? The picture here is of a passive bystander, just standing back and watching while someone else is victimized by injustice. Hands off. The heart of this metaphor is simply that the prophet is lamenting God's inactivity against the wickedness around him. This type of imagery is found in laments throughout Scripture. We see it in the Psalms. Psalm 13, which my daughter Campbell read this morning. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 44. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 90. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call. Be my rock. 
Be not deaf to me. Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Awake. Come to meet me and see. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. We know the Lord doesn't forget anything. We know he doesn't sleep. We know he doesn't need to be woken up. God doesn't take leaves of absence. He doesn't become deaf to our prayers. Habakkuk knows this too. But when you're in the midst of great suffering, that's how it feels. What can we learn from this? I think one of the key points of this text is that we need to be comfortable lamenting like Habakkuk does. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want to encourage you to learn to pray this kind of prayer. The kind of prayer we prayed as a congregation moments ago. In a very practical way, I think you'll find that it can be a powerful medicine to heal a troubled soul. You see, when we're grieving, the simple act of putting our thoughts and our feelings into words can help us process our pain. If you've ever talked to a therapist or a counselor or even just a good friend who is, who is good at listening, I'm sure you've had this experience. Married men, if you haven't learned this very important lesson, pay attention. Sometimes your wife is telling you all the things that she has problems with just so she can talk through them. She needs you to be quiet and listen. She's just putting her frustrations in her words so she can process them. If you have any doubt about this, try and respond to her by giving advice and trying to fix her problems, and then let me know how that goes. Get back to me. If crying on the shoulder of a friend or a spouse or a parent can ease our suffering, how much more can the Lord comfort us if we express our grief to Him in prayer? He who calls us His friends, He who cares for us as His bride, He who loves us with the love of a Father, He who is the God of all comfort. Praying prayers of lament also shows that we have taken stock of the world around us. This is important. Habakkuk's prayer shows that he had his finger on the pulse of his nation. He didn't just see violence. He experienced it. He cried out violence when he encountered it. He raised the alarm when he saw God's law being broken. He was unable to turn a blind eye to the iniquity that was around him. No doubt many others who were living in Judah at the same time saw the same things Habakkuk did. But how many of those people simply hardened their hearts to the evil around them, turned and looked the other way? As Americans, we're blessed with the freedom to create our own wealth, to live where we want to live, to go where we want to go, to consume the kinds of media we want to consume. And yet the danger of this is that we can so easily shut ourselves off from the suffering and justice that might be right down the street from where we live. 
to lament the sins of our community, of our city, of our nation, in the way Habakkuk did, means we have to understand what is happening in these places. How can we as Christians work to do justice when we don't even know what's going on in the world around us? So how can we? How can we take stock of the world around us as we form our laments? Well, for one, we can listen to the local news. We can try and expose ourselves to news sources that may have a different bias than what we feel naturally inclined to think and believe about the world. We can try and seek balance when we get our news. We can become involved in local ministries and organizations that are actively fighting injustice in our communities, like those who protest outside of abortion clinics, or those who fight for religious liberty and fight against persecution of other Christians. We can also do it simply by getting to know our own neighbors better. Now at this point you may be saying to yourself, okay, sure, sounds good. But could I really talk to God like that? You may feel uncomfortable when you read Habakkuk's prayer. I mean, this is the sort of unrestrained emotional outburst that we have trouble imagining ourselves saying to God. Look at verse 3. Habakkuk says, Why do you look idly at wrong? I mean, Habakkuk is doubting God's goodness here. Isn't that a bad thing? Isn't doubt just the cousin of unbelief? If you look at this and think, I don't know that I can pray that way, I think that's probably a healthy reaction. Because we do need to tread lightly here. So let's consider the question. What's the difference between the angry atheist doubting God's goodness in the comments of a YouTube video and Habakkuk the prophet who is overcome with grief and he's asking God why are you tolerating evil well I think today's texts text gives us the answer to that question in a surprisingly simple way see Habakkuk shows us that even though he's doubting God's goodness he is fundamentally categorically different than the unbeliever who doubts God's goodness here's why he is turning to the Lord in prayer. His lament is itself an expression of his trust in God. You see, even in his frustration, even in the midst of his pain, Habakkuk is falling on his knees and crying out to the Lord. He is seeking answers and comfort and justice from God. The unbeliever, on the other hand, doesn't run to God with his doubts. He runs away from God because of his doubts. We see that Habakkuk asks God, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? The unbeliever says, there's no God. Because when I cry out for help, nobody answers. Habakkuk asks God, O Lord, how long shall I cry to you violence and you will not save? The unbeliever says, there's nobody to save us because God is unjust. Habakkuk asks God, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? 
The unbeliever says, God doesn't care about iniquity. God is the cause of what's wrong. Consider the example of the Israelites delivered from Egypt and wandering in the desert. God's chosen nation was made to live there for 40 years. And after some time of wandering around, they began to get tired of it. Many of them in their struggles and their their lack of diversity and their appetite, eating manna from heaven day after day, began to grumble. In Numbers 11 we read, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Here we see God's people complaining about their circumstances. And God's anger burns against them. But notice that the complaints of the Israelites don't come in the form of a heartfelt prayer to God. They come in the form of grumblings to one another about God. In their hearts, they're accusing God and they're turning away from Him. So when we lament, how can we safeguard ourselves from being like these Israelites? I think there's a helpful question we can ask. Ask yourself, am I upset because the world isn't obeying God's will? Or am I upset because God isn't obeying my will? Am I upset because the world isn't obeying God's will? Or am I upset because God isn't obeying my will? You see, Habakkuk is principally grieving over the trampling of God's law. In verse 4 we read, So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. This law that's being paralyzed is the law of God. In the commandments God has given to his people for how they should live. These are the commandments that if they were obeyed would prevent injustice in the land. They would lead to peace and prosperity and goodness. And yet the law is paralyzed. Here we see another one of these anthropomorphic metaphors where where something impersonal is being described with human attributes. Habakkuk is painting the picture of God's law as a living, breathing, active thing that has been made immobile and powerless. It cannot go forth. This is what grieves Habakkuk. He hates what God hates, and he loves what God loves. This is not to say that Christians cannot grieve their own personal experience of suffering. It's not what I'm saying. Christians can and will grieve their own personal suffering. But that grief is always bigger than just our own suffering. We hate suffering not just because injustice and evil and sin hurt us, but because it represents a larger issue which is a rebellion against our king so when we lament are we lamenting that God's law is paralyzed in our land 
Or are we lamenting that God's law, is, His justice is going forth perverted? Or are we like the unbeliever and the grumbling Israelite? Are we lamenting that God is the one in control of history and not us? We should consider these questions carefully because if we don't analyze the state of our own hearts when we start to lament, we run the risk of turning righteous lament into a venting session. You see, when we vent, we hand the reins of our tongue over to our pride and our jealousy and our unrighteous anger, all the sinful aspects of our nature. And you think of venting sort of like an emotional boil over. And I'm sure we've all experienced this. If you've ever vented at somebody, inevitably, when you vent, you say things you wish you hadn't said. And you often end up feeling worse afterwards than you did before you vented. Now, righteous lament can be just as passionate. I'm not, I'm not talking about temperature here. Righteous lament can be just as emotional and heartfelt as venting, but it's pointed in the opposite direction. Habakkuk's speech shows a posture of reverence for and submission to God. While the grumbling of the Israelites, when they vent and let their heat boil over, their frustration causes them to turn away from God in hard-heartedness and rebellion. What practical advice then can we take from Habakkuk's prayer that will help us lament better? Well, I think the first thing that we can observe here is that we need to be honest. Notice how little sugarcoating Habakkuk does in his prayer. If he had said to God, Lord, I know this is all part of your plan and this is sort of hard right now, but it's not that hard because I trust you. He would have been keeping his true feelings to himself. He would have been taking what was in his heart and hiding it from God. But instead, he cries out, Why do you make me see this iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Why aren't you stopping this, God? I think one of the quickest ways that we can compound our suffering and make it worse is to pretend everything's okay when it's not. Yes, we know God is sovereign and because we know that all of the wickedness in the world is part of His sovereign decree, I think we run the risk of adopting a sort of false piety when we see evil in the world. We think that if we express sincerely our doubts and our pains when we lament, if we, if we do it too openly, we might look like we're doubting the sovereignty of God. When we suffer loss or heartbreak or injustice, when we refuse to be honest about the pain and frustration we experience in these things in a very real way, we're not denying God's sovereignty. We're denying that He is a Father who cares deeply about us and loves us and wants to comfort us in our sorrows. We become like the stubborn child who's, who's trying to do something that's clearly too hard for him. And instead of going to his father and admitting it, he refuses and hurts no one but himself. 
The second, and I think perhaps the most important thing that we can take away practically from this prayer is this. Don't expect a resolution to your pain. Habakkuk's prayer ends on a sour note. The final verse reads, For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Historically, we know that Habakkuk never saw Judah return and repent to the Lord. He possibly was even martyred by the very leaders that he was prophesying against and lamenting. Consider the Israelites again. They spent 400 years wallowing in misery in Egypt before they inherited the promised land. 400 years before God delivered them. In the first chapter of Exodus we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In Exodus chapter 2 we read, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see, God did not forget his chosen people of Israel, he was never absent. And yet he made people among his chosen nation live in slavery their entire lives to suffer painful and difficult toil and labor, crying out to him only to die in slavery, never living to see their redemption and their deliverance. See, unlike Walter McMillan, you may never be exonerated. Retribution may never be carried out against the people who have harmed you. You may not live to see the end of abortion in our country. Like Habakkuk, you may look around and you may see, see the wicked grow richer and more powerful and more hardened in their rejection of the Lord. And that may be all you ever see in this life. And this is incredibly important. Because if we have wrong expectations about God's work in the world, we can shipwreck our faith. If you expect that by praying hard enough, or that by, as a church, praying long enough, or by raising enough money, or serving enough meals to homeless people, that we will cure society, that we will end injustice, that we will usher in a perfect utopian world, 
you will be sorely disappointed. See, when we realize that God may not answer our prayers for another hundred years after our own deaths, we guard ourselves against unrealistic expectations and against disappointment. Now you may be thinking, hold on a second, I thought you said that if we go to the Lord in a prayer of lament like Habakkuk, we could find comfort. And now you're telling me that I'm never going to get comfort, that I may suffer and toil my whole life and God may never free me from oppression or injustice or pain. Well, we can have comfort, but not necessarily in the way you might think. See, the hope that we have when we lament as Christians is the hope and the knowledge that someday there will be no more lamenting. Someday God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death itself shall be no more. There will be no mourning, no crying, no more pain because all of those things will have passed away. You see, this world, with all of its injustice, with all of its evil, with all of its imbalanced scales and partiality, it will be consumed by God's holy and righteous fire. And everything that is worthless and evil will be burned away. And he will restore all of creation and he will put an end to everything we have to lament in this life. Until then, you can also take comfort in knowing that Jesus himself knows your lament. Jesus himself experienced the kind of grief that Habakkuk here is praying and that we experience. While he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to his father praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The cup was the wrath of God he was about to experience poured out on him on the cross. And it filled him with such dread and such anguish that the Gospel of Luke says he sweat blood from his pores. On the cross, Jesus cried out again, this time quoting Psalm 22, which reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You see, Jesus knows the agony of being separated from the Father better than you or I could ever imagine. And yet because of the suffering that he endured, we now have hope. You see, for those of us who have turned to Christ in faith and accepted his free offer of forgiveness, he has made the bitterness of our lament into something bittersweet. But if you're not a Christian, there's no sweetness in your suffering for you. It will not end in anything 
like what I've just described. It will not end in the permanent, eternal peace and joy that we have through Christ. You see, you will be part of what God cleans up in this world when He restores it. And when He does, you will be as far as anyone can possibly be from God's fatherly love. You will be under His wrath for eternity. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not sure that you're a Christian, with love for you, I ask you, please talk to someone in this room. Find out what that means. Your soul depends on it. And if you are a Christian, remember that we will inherit a restored and sinless creation where every tear is gone. And we will not only never feel separation from God again, but as we sang this morning, we will see Him in His full glory. We will be face to face for eternity with the Ancient of Days. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You would comfort those who grieve, that You would help us to grieve better, Help us to hope and trust in you despite there being sometimes no end in sight. We thank you for your son and his sacrifice for us. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Please stand with me.